The scripture readings for today are Proverbs 29:25 and 14:26 through 27. I'll read 29:25 first. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then uh, chapter 14, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. This is the word of the Lord. Hi again, New Hope. It's great to see you once again. Um, if, you're, if you're visiting with us, it's, uh, it's great to have you. Really happy you're here, and I, I look forward to meeting you if you're visiting with us. Um, I want to invite you to grab a Bible, if you have one with you. If you don't, there should be one right in front of you in the, in the pew rack. Grab that and open up to Proverbs 29. If, uh, if you don't know, Proverbs 29 sits almost about halfway through the Bible. You can open up there. And um, we're, we're going to look at, at what is a, a, a brief passage, a short verse. And then we're going to jump around a little bit and look at some other parts of the Proverbs and other parts of the Bible, too. Um, I was once in a restaurant, and I saw a sign on the wall that said in big, bold letters these words. It said, do right and fear no man. Do right and fear no man. And when I read that, it, it resonated with me. I thought, this is good, sound advice. You know, this is the sort of thing that I, I would want to teach my, my children. You know, maybe you'd want to teach your kids your, with, a, with an arm or around their shoulder and, and tell them that they don't have to fear anyone in life. What they need to do is to do what's right. And, and at the same time that that message seemed like sound advice to me, I also felt uncomfortable with it as I sat there. Because I realized, even as I was reading it, the sad truth that I have not always done what is right. And, and, and I have also feared man. I have feared people. And at times I've allowed that fear of people and what they think of me and what they say about me and what they might do to me, to, 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 I've allowed that to shape my actions to shape my thoughts so that I no longer did what was right. And, and I think that if you're honest with yourselves, you, you'll have to admit that, that you're no stranger to that kind of fear of man as well. It, it's a common problem. It, it's something that so many of us, if not all of us, struggle with in some way. And God knows this about us. And that's why he gives us the simple, profound truth in Proverbs 29, 25. It's, it's a warning to us, but it's also instruction for us, encouraging instruction for our hearts. He says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And so what I want us to do today is ask three simple questions. I want us to ask, what is the fear of man? Where does it come from? And how do we get free from it? What is it? Where does it come from? How do we get free? Okay, so the first question is simply, what is the fear of man? So I want to explain to you what I believe the Bible means when it talks about the fear of man and what I mean when, when I say it here. It, it's this kind of consuming, oppressive concern with what other people might do to you or what with, uh, about what, what other people think about you or whether they approve of you. It's this controlling concern about the opinions of others. 
And that, that's really where I want to focus today, because the fear of man could take other shapes. It could simply mean like you're afraid that someone's going to hurt you and kill you. It could be that kind of fear. But what I want to focus on is a kind of relational fear, the fear that we encounter day by day by day when we become so concerned, overly concerned, in fact, even controlled by what others might think of us, how others view us, whether or not they esteem us, whether or not they accept us. At times, this kind of fear can be crippling. And and at times, it can drive you to do things that you're going to deeply regret, things that you never expected to do. Either way, it, it always results in shame, and it results in guilt, and it results in the sense that you're enslaved by it. And you are enslaved by it. That's what Proverbs 29 says. It says that the fear of man, it, it brings a snare. A snare's a trap. It, it holds us in bondage. It lays a trap, and then it holds on to you. A counselor and an author by the name of Ed Welch wrote a book a while back called When People Are Big and God is Small. I commend it to you if, you if you want to read more about this topic. When people are big and God is small. And this book, he deals with, from many different angles, what it means to fear people and how to break free from that kind of fear. And he asks in this book a series of questions aimed at helping us diagnose if this is something that we have a problem with. All right? So, so I, I want to I read some of these questions to you because I, I hope that maybe they'll help you. And they'll help us see that the fear of man takes many different shapes. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's slippery and it's tricky. We might even not, not even realize that we're being um, affected by it when we really are. So here are some questions. One, do you crave compliments? Do you crave them? Maybe even fish for them from others. Do, do you get easily embarrassed? That's the second question. Do you get easily embarrassed when, when, when you notice that people are looking at you and, and you've done something wrong or you've done something silly or foolish and, and the stare of others just crushes you inside and you just want to hide and get away from the world? Does that happen easily for you? Number three, do you find yourself getting angry and defensive when someone simply doesn't like you? <laughs> or maybe they don't like you as much as you wish they would like you? Number four, are you overly concerned with your appearance? Maybe it's your dress, maybe it's your body shape, or, 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 or here's another follow-up question that goes along with that. Are you often concerned about whether you're attractive to other people? Number five, do you feel unappreciated and crave more applause? Do you crave being noticed more and applauded more? Number six, do you find yourself lashing out at others who keep you from looking good? When someone else gets in the way of you shining, do you find yourself getting angry and lashing out and wanting to make that person look bad? (laughs) Number seven, are you afraid you might be exposed as an imposter, as a fraud one day? And so you spend your life managing your reputation. Maybe you lie or you even twist the truth to to protect your image, to protect your status. Has that ever happened for you? Number eight, do you have trouble saying no? And as a result, you're overcommitted, stretched way too thin, 
And the reason is that because when someone asks you to do something or encourages you to do something, you're unwilling to say no because maybe deep down you're afraid that they might not approve of you if you say no. They might like you a little less. Their opinion of you may suffer if you don't agree to do the things that they're asking you to do. And so you just keep committing and committing and committing and stretching yourself thinner and thinner and thinner and hoping that people will like you more as a result of it or esteem you more highly. Number nine, there's two more to go. And these questions are kind of torturous, right? I feel like they're a little torturous. So I'm going to let up, don't worry. Number nine, will you hold back from confronting a friend in their folly because you worry that they're not going to like you as much if you confront them? So, so you hold back, not because you feel like it's not the right time and it might not be good for them if I confront them. You hold back because you realize it won't be good for you if you confront them. They might reject you. Or last one, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you find yourselves at times keeping your identity as a believer in Christ or even keeping from speaking the gospel to others because you fear how you're going to be perceived. Those are, those are just some questions that, that shine a light on some of the different ways that the fear of man can manifest itself in our lives. And that they're, they're, it's not exhaustive. We could ask more questions. And the fact is that whether it's manifesting itself in any of those ways or others, it always, go, it always leads us to a very bad place. It always leads to shame. It always leads to guilt. Because when we see these tendencies in ourselves, we hate it about ourselves, don't we? Don't you hate the fact that you care too much about what others think of you? Don't you hate this desire, this tendency to want to market yourself or manage your public image in such a way that you always look good? It keeps us from living wisely. So later in that same book, Ed Welch, who gave us those questions, or some of those, I actually added some of those questions myself, he, he says, the fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. So if someone says, I don't struggle with that, we should be like, are you even really human? Are, are you alive? It's common. Some of us struggle mightily with it. It's a daily struggle. For some of us, maybe it's something that just pops its head up once in a while. For some of us, maybe it's something we've struggled with for years and years, perhaps failingly. Maybe it disguises itself in your life. But the fact is that it's a common struggle, all right? It's a common struggle. And in fact, God doesn't even hide it in the people that he gives us in the Bible. That, what I mean is that when we look at characters in the Bible, these people that God has used throughout history, like Moses, like Abraham, like Peter, all men of faith, all men who followed God, all men which, who struggled with the fear of man and made poor decisions at times because they were afraid of what others thought of them and how others saw them. And God doesn't hide that from us. He puts it on display for us to see. But here's the thing. The fact that this is such a common struggle shouldn't make us think that it's a small thing. Sometimes we reason this way. All right, if everyone struggles with that, then I guess it's not a bad, big deal if I struggle with it. It's a common thing. I think that when God presents us with a particular kind of sin 
that's so common in the scriptures, the aim is not so that we'll read it and be like, oh, everyone struggles with that, no big deal. It's quite the opposite. He's showing us how common it is so that we'll be alerted to how insidious, how insidious it is, how awful it is, how dangerous it is. When we realize that the fear of man is so common to human experience, when we realize how widespread it is, we're meant to be jolted into taking it seriously. It should, it should move us to actually confess it to God. It should, it should help us when we start thinking about that, yeah, my brothers and sisters, my friends, they deal with this too. So let's struggle together. To one degree or another, let's get help from God and from each other to actually kill this sort of thing in our lives. Proverbs 9.10, which is kind of this, this, this central proverb in, in, in this whole book, it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, we, get, we start to gain true wisdom when we start to understand who God is and how we relate to him. When we start to see God for who he really is and relate to him in the way that he's calling us to relate to him, that's when we start to actually grow in wisdom. So, so what I'm praying for and what I hope we see today is, 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 is how to answer to your oppressive, controlling concern about others and how they feel about you. The answer lies here. It lies in knowing and believing more deeply who God is and how we relate to him. So that the fear of God would actually steadily overcome and replace the fear of people in our lives. So his second question is this. Where, where does this fear come from? Where does it come from? Um, why is it such a problem for so many of us? There, there's a sense, um, there's a scene in the Gospel of John that I think provides some insight I heard this passage once expounded by a pastor, and, and I found it very helpful, and I found myself as a result of that, go, actually it was your guy's old pastor, J.R. Vassar, p- preaching on this. It made me want to keep going back to this passage and looking at it again and again and seeing my own heart in the hearts of these Pharisees or in the hearts of these people. Look at what, um, look at what the Gospel of John says. It's talking about how people were responding to Jesus. It says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were believing in Jesus, but they were keeping it hidden. They didn't want anyone to know And they didn't confess it openly. Why? Because they feared getting put out of the synagogue. And why did they fear being put out of the synagogue? Here's why. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These people had seen and heard Jesus Christ. But but here's the thing. They desired to be held in high esteem. Many of them already were. They were authorities. They were important people. And they wanted to maintain that status. And that desire ended up ensnaring them. It trapped them. Because they feared losing the esteem that they had. 
They didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was community. The synagogue was the religious established place where people lived and did life. To be kicked out would be to to lose status in the community and to some degree to lose community altogether. They didn't want to be outsiders. They didn't want to be alienated. And why did they fear that ultimately? Because they esteemed the, the glory that comes from man above the glory that comes from God. And here's what this, 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 here's what this tells us. There's a glory that comes from man, and there's a glory that comes from our creator. They wanted the former. And that's super important for us to see. Because when we fear people, and it shapes the way that we think and act and live, we're actually, in some way, Seeking the glory that comes from man above the glory that comes from God. That's why Ed Welch called his book When People Are Big and God is Small. Because in those moments, people and their opinions and their power over us looks huge to us. God and what he says about us looks minuscule and irrelevant and far away. You know, you know what this also tells us, this scene in John 12? It tells us that the, the desire for glory, the desire to be esteemed, is not in itself a bad thing. It's not. In fact, in fact, it's been wired into us by God. God designed us to desire honor and esteem. God wired us to desire acceptance and to want to be approved of. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, when God first created humans, what does he do? He blesses them. He speaks well of them. He says, very good. He actually bestows honor on them. He approves of them fully. How do we know that? Look at what Psalm 8 tells us. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, listen, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. If you are made in the image of God, and every single one of us here has been made in the image of God, then God has bestowed you, he has crowned you with glory and honor. Humanity was created in one sense to receive glory and honor. Again, we are wired to want it, to crave it. And Proverbs tells us, as we look at some other passages here, that this desire for glory and honor is not a negative thing. Look, look at, look at Proverbs 3, 35. Proverbs 3, 35 says, The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. So what is one of the motives that God gives us here for wanting to be wise? Why should you want to be wise? Here's one reason. You will inherit honor. Now, if the desire for honor were this terrible, sinful thing, then why would God use it as a motive for us to actually seek wisdom? Look at Proverbs 22. Same idea. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Here's one of the reasons why you should seek to be humble and seek to fear the Lord, because God says that's the way to receive honor. And he knows that we want that. 
Proverbs, one more, Proverbs 29, 23, it says, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Again, God knows us so well. He knows our deepest desires. And he shows us how to really get them in the way that we are designed to get them. But the question for us is here, it's this, who do we want honor from? Whose esteem do you crave? Adam and Eve were made to receive honor, but but ever since they fell in the garden, ever since they rejected what the good things that God had given them, the honor that he had bestowed on them, ever since then, all of humanity, you know what we've been doing? We've been looking for honor and glory in all the wrong places, from the wrong sources, and that's the problem. It's what we see in John 12. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were, they, they were willing to settle for a cheap substitute for the honor that God can give us. Chase that cheap counterfeit substitute of the honor that comes from people, just like us, who crave honor just like we do, who are probably just as worried about what we think of them as we are worried about what they think of us. Rather than seek honor from the one who made us, who knows us, who loves us, we seek it from other broken, needy people who are chasing the same kind of approval that we're chasing. It's sad, isn't it? It's, it's, in a deep way, I don't mean just sad, like, I mean it in a deep sense, it's tragic. Because we're made for so much more. Adam and Eve, they wanted approval apart from God, and that's what they chased, and it derailed everything. They, they fell for a con, and we fall for the same con, the same trick. Every time we, we go chasing something that we'll never get, that approval, that, that, constant, that constant sense of acceptance from the people around us, it's always going to be out of reach. It's always going to keep us on a treadmill, getting nowhere. Their desire, in a sense, got warped, and our desire for honor as well got warped. And and as a result, think about what happened to Adam and Eve. They, They get thrust into this place of guilt and shame. They start blaming each other. They start self justifying. They 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 hide themselves with they they use fig leaves. And hide behind bushes. Why? Because they're, they're, they're hiding the real them. They're wanting to get out of the sight of God because they're ashamed. So often we don't care if God crowns us with glory and honor. Instead, we say to the people around us implicitly, I want you to honor me. Church, I want you to honor me. In fact, I'd be happy if you just liked me. And we look for approval in small sickening ways. We hide our real selves because we're fearful that if people saw the real us, then we would certainly lose their approval. We try to minimize our faults and and market ourselves and always present the best image possible. And it always brings a snare. It always traps us. You know, that, that word for snare that's in Proverbs 29, 25, it's used to refer to the kinds of traps that hunters would use to capture animals, capture birds, other animals. Maybe it's a trap that sits on the ground, and an animal takes the bait, walks into it, and he's stuck. 
And this is the way it happens for us. Maybe, maybe we walk into it, we don't even notice it until we're trapped. We don't even see what's going on. I, there was an example, I, I, shared, I shared this with, I think I've shared this with a few of you in conversation, but it's something that, that kind of really stuck with me. Um, this was a while back. I remember Delimar and I, my wife and I, were having a conversation over an email that she sent out to our old church when we were at Maranatha before we came here. And um, it was, it was, we were dealing with a sensitive situation, and um, Delimar sent out this, this email to some folks seeking to kind of address and help the situation. And I read it, and um, it, it immediately worried me because I felt like this, this, is not, this is not the way I would have said this. This is not the message that I intended to send. And so I felt like I wanted to go into this immediate kind of like triage mode trying to manage this situation, trying to regather stuff so that I can repackage and represent this information in a way that was, well, to be honest, just more accurate and more clear and more winsome and, and just better. At least that's what I was telling myself. But I remember talking to Delimar about it, and, and she said, yeah, you know, I see what you're saying. I shouldn't have sent that. And I'm like, yeah, but you really shouldn't have sent that. And it turned into a long conversation. And after this long conversation, she said, you know, basically, you're just repeating yourself. I've already told you that I realize I shouldn't have sent that email. I've told you I'm sorry for sending it. What more do you want me to do? And I'm like, I don't know what you should do. All I know is that I'm really upset about this. And now what am I going to do? And she said, you know, Rob, I get, I get that you're upset about this. But I think you really need to start thinking about why you're so upset. She goes, maybe. <laughs> she goes, maybe. Maybe there's just some fear stuff going around, going on in your heart. Maybe you're just afraid of how this is going to reflect on you personally. And if that's the case, then really it's out of my hands. That's something you need to deal with, Rob. And so I looked at her, and I had no words. Like, zero words. And so I, uh, I turned around, and I faced in the other direction. And I stood facing it. It was very awkward. I stood facing in the other direction for a good 20 seconds. And then I just walked out of the room. What happened during that conversation is that my wife had shown this, this huge spotlight on something that I was missing completely in my heart. I had gotten trapped in the fear of man, and it was bringing now, it was bringing conflict into my family with my wife. I was now projecting my own shame on her. I was causing her to feel guilty and ashamed for no reason because I felt ashamed and worried. It was going to bring conflict between me and other people in my church. It was causing me to worry about how other leaders in the church were going to view it. Was, it was creating chaos in my heart, and I had walked into that trap unbeknownst to myself. Thankfully, my wife showed me, look, here's a trap, and she helped me kind of get out of it, too. It led to me confessing my fear to my wife, it led me to confessing my fear to some of the other leaders in the church that I had to talk to about this. And it led to me realizing just how insidious this fear of man really is. It's hard to break free from these sorts of traps. It's really hard. Especially because breaking free often involves humbling ourselves, which is something people who struggle with the fear of man don't like doing all that much. I remember another occasion where we were, we were driving to a, a, a rehearsal dinner at a, at a, at, at, um, it was at our old church building. We were going to a rehearsal dinner, 
and we were late. We were running really late, and um, it, it, was, it was my family's fault that we were late that particular day. And so we're driving over there, and I'm just, like, upset with everyone. I'm like, you, what, you know, one kid, I'm like, why, why, why is it always... It's like you need Indiana Jones to find this kid's shoes in the house. Like, he can never find them. You need to be, you need to be trained by the, by, by the military to be able to, to, to somehow find this kid's clothes and shoes in our house. He can never find them. And I'm like, the other kid, why, why don't you understand that five minutes means five minutes? If you have five minutes to get ready, you've got to get ready faster. You've got to rush. And you, how come you only realize right when we're going to leave that? And I'm, I'm finding reasons with each one of them for why they made us late. And I also made certain observations to my wife about why her actions made us late. So it's a 20-minute drive, and over the course of this 20-minute drive to church, finally, it dawns on me, with the help of my wife, it dawned on her first, and then she, she helped <laughs> dawn on me. She says, she says Rob, what, what are you, why are you so worried about being late? And I said, it's, it's inconsiderate to be late. These people are waiting for us. I'm supposed to direct this rehearsal dinner. I'm supposed to help people know how this wedding is going to go. If I'm not there, it holds everything up. It's inconsiderate. Their families are there. They flew in from Chicago and from California and from other places, and they're all waiting for us, and it's wrong. And, and I believe what my wife asked me was something like, um, is, is what worries you the fact that you're inconveniencing them or that they're going to view you as the person who inconveniences other people? It's, it's a subtle difference, Right? And what I realize is, is, yeah, I don't like to inconvenience people, but what I really, really hate is being viewed as the guy who's late. The guy who messed everything up. The guy who kept everyone waiting. I didn't want to be esteemed in that way. And so again, again, I thought I was just being justifiably upset. And maybe to some degree I was, but deep down there's this fear of man that was governing my thinking, and it was causing me to again lash out against others. Why? Because they kept me from looking good. I was working hard to look good for these people, and they impeded that. And there was a price to pay for that. You see how insidious it is? How, how slippery and tricky it is? How do we get free from this sort of... Maybe, maybe there are stories that you can tell. Maybe your stories aren't as, as, as lame as my stories. Maybe they're not as shameful as mine. Maybe they're more dramatic. Maybe they're more subtle. But I trust that you have stories where the fear of man has shaped your behavior as well. I don't think I'm alone. That's one of the reasons I'm willing to share those things for you, because I don't think I'm the only one. How do we get free? How do we get free? Some might say that the answer to fearing man is having more self-confidence. In other words, our, our, our culture tells us you can replace the fear of man with just staunch self-reliance. Like, be more confident. Take an I don't care attitude. Like, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. It's kind of an American ideal, you know, this kind of sense of individualism, this sense that says, my sense of self is not affected in any way by what all of you think of me. God gives us a different answer, though. He says the way to break free from the fear of man is not self-reliance or pride. On the contrary, what does he say in Proverbs 29, 25? He says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Think, think about the imagery there, by the way. Remember the word for snare, it's a trap that sits on the ground. 
The word for safe here means you've been lifted up. You're, you're above that trap. Think of it this way. If it's a trap, sometimes this word for snare is used to, 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 to describe traps that were used to catch birds. A bird who's walking along on the ground and walks into this trap is in danger. Obviously, he's done for. The place of safety is a place up in the tree. What Proverbs 29, 25 quite literally is telling us, he who trusts in the Lord is above that snare. He's safe up in the branches of that tree. Not because he trusts in himself, not because he's so confident in his own competence and abilities and character that he doesn't have to care about what others think. No, he's so, <laughs> he's, he trusts so deeply in God's competence and character and goodness and power. He's no longer in danger. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 14, 27 says, is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Look, the only real way of escaping the snare set by the fear of man, the only way to truly break free from it is to look for honor and to look for approval that's better, that's bigger than what any person can offer you. In one sense, that's what it means to fear the Lord. It means to care more about his esteem, in one sense. His approval is actually what matters. And guess what? God says his approval is actually available to us. In fact, it's guaranteed to us in Jesus Christ. Look at what John 1 says about Jesus. Stunning passage. He came, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen to this. Jesus came to his own people, to the Jewish people. Many of them did not receive him. They didn't acknowledge him. They did not honor him. They did not give him approval. Instead, they rejected him. Jesus knows what it means to be rejected by people. Jesus knows what it means to be refused approval and acceptance. He knows what it means to be the outsider. And yet, yet, those who did receive him, those who did believe in him, he gave us the right to be children of God. What does this mean, guys? To be children of God. It speaks of full acceptance. Full approval. You are loved. You are welcomed at the table. And nothing can put that in jeopardy. My kids don't have to, they don't have to fight and compete for my approval. They don't need to fight for acceptance from me. And the same thing goes for us with regard to our relationship with God. We don't have to fight for his acceptance. We don't have to compete for his approval the way we do have to fight and compete for the approval of other people. His approval is guaranteed. It becomes ours. And listen, the same God who says to Jesus Christ, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, he looks at all of us who are in Christ, who believed in Jesus and are now united to Jesus by faith. He says of us, my sons, in whom I'm well pleased. That's the gospel message to us in the midst of all this fear. 
I remember once on, on the suggestion of some, some friends, I think it was, when, when my oldest two kids were, were pretty little, they were probably uh, four and three years old or something like that, I don't think they even remember this, we, we took them to this agency that, um, that, that was in the business of um, placing kids in advertisements, you know, like in, in yeah, print and, and, and TV advertisements. And um, so we, had, we knew someone who was in the business, and, and they kind of suggested, oh, you should try this. And we weren't too sold on it, but we said, okay, let's try. And um, it was a fun experience, actually. It was interesting. Um, the, the one thing that, that, that has always stuck with me, though, I remember sitting in a, in, a, in a lobby, actually, with two reps from this agency. And um, they were very polite. They were very sweet, and they were just doing their job. And they were probably doing a good job. But they're looking through these pictures of my kids. And as they're looking at pictures, I could tell they weren't all that impressed by my kids. I'm impressed by you. You're, you're, my kids I think my kids are beautiful. These, kids, these people, they're like, eh, I don't know. They didn't seem too impressed, you know? They're going through. They're looking at these pictures. And, and I could feel in my own heart this, like, movement. This, this, something, something in my heart was moving me to say, like, who are you to judge my kids? Like, why does your opinion even matter? Now, clearly, their opinion matters because they're running a business, and, you know, I understand that. But in my own heart, I'm thinking, wait a second. These are my children. I get to judge them, and I judge them with full approval and love. I think they're beautiful. Your opinion means nothing to me, I'm thinking. And I walk out of there feeling weird that I even put these people in a position to judge my kids. Now, now here's what I mean by it. Here's why I, I talk about any of that. As our father, God looks at us as his children, whom he disciplines, yes, whom he corrects, yes, but whom he accepts perfectly and loves and bestows, Psalm says, honor and glory on us. And yet, we, for some reason, want to get the opinions of others. What do you think about me? Can I get some honor from you? Hey, how come you don't esteem me more highly? And God stands there the way I stood there in that lobby saying, no, those opinions, who cares? You're mine, and I love you. And I accept you fully. And the more we begin to fathom, the more we begin to really believe that, the more the honor and acceptance that God gives us starts to get bigger in our hearts than the honor and acceptance we get from other people. It starts to look cheap, you know? It starts to look kind of irrelevant. The more people's judgments begin to lose their power. So we need to live in the light of this, new hope. And the only way we're going to live in the light of it is by exposing our hearts, exposing our minds again and again and again to this gospel truth reminding ourselves again and again of it. It's not just repeating a mantra like, I'm accepted in Christ, I'm accepted in Christ, God loves me, God loves me. It's not just repeating those words, but it's, it's, it's kind of soaking in, dwelling in the truth of what God tells us. He tells us that he has sent his son to take our place and to die in our place. He gave him up in order to receive us as his children. So that in Christ, you and I, if you have believed in Christ, have been received as his children. He delights in you. He, we want to belong. God says, you belong with me now. You have a place at my table. In Christ, God sees us as righteous. We want other people to think we're righteous. God says, no, in Christ, I see you that way now. 
and I'm committed to making you more righteous, practically speaking, as I sanctify you, as I change you. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, God is our constant helper. He's with us. We sang about this just before. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In Christ, we now have the Spirit of God living in us. Present with us. 2 Timothy 1 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's given us his spirit, and his spirit is not a spirit of fear, it's a spirit of love and power and self-control. In Christ, get this, in Christ, you and I have the hope of receiving a future glory that outshines all the glory that we're after in this world, whether it's in our careers, or it's in our relationships, or it's in our church, or wherever. He has promised us a future glory. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians 2 says. It says, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's this already not yet sense. In one sense, we are already the children of God. We have already been bestowed with tremendous blessing. And yet there's this not yet sense in which there's glory that we are going to receive that we have not received yet. But we will. It's guaranteed. Listen to what 1 Peter 1 says. He's talking to us in the midst of all our struggles right here. Our struggles with people who maybe don't think highly of us. Maybe even persecute us and make life difficult for us. Peter says, look, look, while you're living in the midst of that, remember this. Remember this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found your faith now, your trust in God now, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, the revelation of Jesus refers to when he returns, there will be glory and honor and praise. Now, will we be giving him glory and honor and praise? Absolutely. But the grammar of that sentence tells us more than that. It tells us that, yeah, we're going to be giving God all the glory, giving Jesus the glory, the praise, and the honor when we see him. But in another sense, he will be giving us. He will be bringing into reality, into our real experience, the glory and the praise and the honor that we have always desired. In his presence. So we hold out for that better glory. We hold out for that better honor and stop chasing the honor that entices us here. You know, gospel in Proverbs 29, 25, it says, trust God to honor you. And, 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 and then you'll be safe. Safe from death, yeah. Eternal death, yeah. But you'll also be safe from all those million little tiny deaths that you and I experience every time that we try to earn a smile or earn a pat on the back or a compliment, or some kind of reward. Find honor in him. 
And, and there's one other thing that I wanted to, one other kind of shade on this that I wanted, one other angle that I wanted to give this to you from, and, and then we'll end. We begin to break free from the fear of man when we start seeking the honor and the glory that come from God and not from man, okay? But there's another angle on this that I think I'm finding to be very helpful and I think we can all find to be helpful. The more we become certain of God's calling, the more clear we are on the fact that God has called us to be his people, to be on his mission, to accomplish his work, that ultimately we're his servants, that's going to embolden us to care less about the opinions of others. When someone's on a mission and they've been sent and they're all about that mission, there's a sense in which the distractions of other people's voices start to fade. They're focused. They're like, no, I've got a reason to be here. I've, I've got a reason to be here on earth. I'm supposed to be an ambassador for my God. I'm his servant. It, it, it focuses us so that we start to care less about what other people think. You know, there was this, this um, video that was circulating around the time of the Olympics. Um, maybe some of you saw it. It was right before a swim meet, and Michael Phelps, who's won, I think, I think 5,000 gold medals, right? He was, he's there um, getting ready to swim, and he's, he's, watch, he's sitting there. Have you seen this? He's got a hood on. He's got some headphones, and he's got this look of, like, death on his face. He looks so angry and so focused, and his eyes aren't shifting. He's just looking straight ahead, and some of his competitors are in front of him. Some of them are dancing. Some of them are uh, they're, they're stretching. They're shadow boxing. They're getting in front of him and doing all these moves and stuff, and he's just like, I don't see anything. I'm just, like, in the zone. I'm getting ready to swim and I'm going to finish before all of you guys. There's a sense in which, it, it doesn't mean that we're aloof from the rest of the world, but there's a sense in which when we're clear on the fact that we are God's servants and we have been called to represent him and be on his mission, that the opinions of others start to, it's just noise. It's background. It's what we see in, the, in, the, in, in Jesus. Towards the end of his life on earth, the Gospels tell us that although many things were happening all around him, he set his face like a flint, it says, towards Jerusalem to go to that city and die for his people. And nothing, all the naysayers, all the haters, that's a biblical word, I think Jesus used to call them haters, he would not, he would not listen to them, he just keeps going. It's what we see in the Apostle Paul. I want to end with this quote from 1 Corinthians 4, and I think it'll project up here. The Apostle Paul saw himself as a servant of God. A child of God with full acceptance? Yes. Also a servant of God who is accountable to that God. Both are very important. Look at what he says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, <laughs> it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, when we're certain that we're doing the Lord's will, when we're certain that we're walking in obedience to him, we get emboldened. 
We know that we're accountable to him, that he's given us a task. And, and that kind of it frees us from the fear of other people. But it doesn't make us like aloof, proud jerks who are just self-sufficient. And, and it, doesn't do, it didn't do that for Paul. In fact, look what it does. It turns him into a man whose goals were to be faithful to God and faithful to other people. It turns him into a better servant of God and a better servant of other people. He's better able to love people because he's not afraid of them. When we fear people's opinions, we cannot love them. We cannot serve them because we're only worried about how they view us. They become instruments for our good, instruments for us to build esteem, instruments for us to feel better about ourselves. It's only when we see ourselves as fully accepted by God on the one hand, and on the other hand, accountable to God and, and on mission for him, that's when, that's when we can start to care less about what others think and care more about them, love them more. Because when we're craving and chasing approval, we're not loving people. We're using them to bolster our own sense of self-worth. And that's not living wisely. That's not living wisely. So remember, New Hope, if you're in Christ this morning, you are accepted and you are approved of in Jesus. And you have a mission, a calling to represent Jesus. Do you see the power in that? That means that because of the gospel, every conversation doesn't need to be an audition, a job interview. You don't have to walk through life like you're on trial and, and, and everyone you meet is, is, is forming a judgment on you with the power to either quit you or, or condemn you. It's true we want approval, guys. We, we always will, and we're going to keep trying to get it from family, or we're going to keep trying to get it from colleagues, even from strangers, unless we remember and believe that there's a greater honor that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, we confess openly as a people before you our need our need for rescue from the fear of man. And so we pray that you would do what only you can do and rescue us and thereby empower us to love others more and to rest more securely in all that you have done and given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.